Okay, got it. Ready? <clears throat> You're listening to Paul Elmore. Paul Elmore. <laughs> Shh. All right. Man, I got to get going faster. I got failure 101. Again, started from an experience that um, absolutely rocked my world. And it happened in such a way that I, I was not prepared for it. Um, I was completely taken off guard by this experience um, in my life, but it was so profound, it was so life-shaping that um, I actually started researching failure, I started taking notes, I put together the Failure 101 class that we did five years ago, um, and I've gotten a lot of mileage out of this one experience, and, and again, I hope some of you get to have one of these experiences that are as this life shaping as it's just so profound. For me, it happened in a poker game uh, of all places. I, I was really bad at poker. I, I, in fact, you were, I was the guy that you wanted to call over for poker because you just take all my money because I was that bad. It was just, I was not good at it. And so I realized this and I realized I need to be able to, you know, save some of my, my coin as I'm playing. And so I said, I'm going to go online. I'm going to learn how to play poker. And this is five years ago when you could actually play for real money online. I don't think you can do that anymore, can you? I think it's illegal here in the States. I think. Depending on what state you're in, say. So for, you know, several months I played with pretend money. Just, you know, they give you a set of chips that, and it's just fake money. How many play poker in here? You know, Texas Hold'em, enjoy that. All right, so that's, that's more of an audience. Um, poker's really fun. It, you can do a lot of fun stuff with it. Um, and so I played for a while, but anyone who plays poker knows that when you play with pretend money, it's not the same as playing with real money, is it? You get people that have betting all sorts of crazy hands, and it doesn't matter what they're really holding. They're just throwing chips in, and it just it isn't really good poker. So I, <clears throat> I made the decision that I needed to make an investment. And instead of buying a book on how to play poker, I said, I'm going to invest $50 in actually playing poker. And so I bought $50 worth of chips and stepped up to the big tables, you know, the 25 cent, 50 cent tables, <laughs> and decided to play. And I played for, you know, a couple days, and I fully expected to lose all the money. I knew that I was not going to win back all my money. This is, this is lesson. I was investing in an education. And so I played for, you know, a couple days and playing one night. And all of a sudden, I hit a hand, which is fantastic. So for people who are playing poker, I was dealt that. What is that? Can you see? Pocket queens. Is that a good hand or a bad hand? It's a strong hand. You, you can do better. It's not pocket rockets, but it's okay. Pocket queens. That's, that's not a bad hand. You get to hold that. You're, you're playing me, okay? And so I'm going, all right, I'm going to... I'm gonna, play this hand, and I think I'm actually going to play fairly aggressively because this is actually good cards. And, and people bet around in a small blind, big blind, everything goes in. And then the next three cards come. What are those called? The flop, exactly. And the flop shows up with a queen, nine, eight. What am I sitting on now? Trip, trip queens, right? Bad hand or good hand? Pretty strong hand, isn't it? I'm going... This is a nice day. And so I, make, I can remember making a conscious decision at that moment. Hey, I think I have a really good chance of winning. By now, everyone else has kind of folded out and it's me against one other guy. We're playing heads up poker here. And I'm going, I want to slow play this. I don't want to get too anxious. I don't want to get too excited because I want this guy to put in more money. I want to take as much of his cash as I can. 
And so I slow play it. He raises one time, and I'm going, sweet, I'll take this. I call. And so we've probably got, you know, six, seven bucks in the pot so far. So, I mean, big cash here. Um, next card shows up, a nine. What am I sitting on now? Full house, queen's high. Good hand, bad hand. Would you play it? Yes. And I'm going, I can't believe it. I'm sitting on a full house, queen's high, nothing. I mean, no kings, no aces, nothing there. I'm doing good. Even if an ace shows up, queen, queen high, full house, let's play this. And I can, again, I remember getting excited. My heart starts to beat. I got a little heartbeat going. I'm going, I'm going to take this guy's money, and I can't wait to win. It's going to be awesome. And so I bet again, he raises, sweet. I raise again, and we got probably 12, 13 bucks in now. It's big, it's big. We, um, the river comes, five, no help, okay? No chance of a flush, no chance of a straight. I'm sitting on a really, really nice hand, right? I bet again, he calls, he raises, and we got probably 15, 20 bucks in, 15, 18 bucks in there. So again, not a lot of cash in there. The reveal comes. My two queens are showed, shows my full house, and his pocket nines show up. He's got four of a kind. And I watch all of my money go out of my pot into his. And the, the amount of desperation, of despair, of, of self-criticism in that one moment blinded me. I, I couldn't play anymore. I actually played maybe one, two more hands, folded out of it. I said, there's no way in the world I can play anymore. And I, I literally felt sick to my stomach. I literally um, was sweating, and the script started to play in my head over and over and over again. It said, what were you thinking? You should have known better. You should have known better. You are irresponsible. You are foolish. You're a sucker. You got played. You should have known better. And again, I, I'm investing in this to learn how to play poker. That's a pretty good lesson. But I, I beat myself up over and over. And it was so, it was so significant. It was so profound. Um, I, I stayed in that state. My, my mental state was that kind of desperation, that fear, for probably two days. Again, one hand of poker, seven, eight bucks. It put me in such a bad place for two days that I'm going, there's more going on than just poker right now. There is a much bigger lesson going on, and I need to pay attention. And so as I started to kind of ask myself, what's going on? What happened? It hit me. It kind of, I kind of woke up, and I realized, here's the problem. I had grown up my entire life, and I had been told, Paul, you need to play it safe. You need to be responsible. You need to be careful about what you do. If you are foolish, if you, if you try to shoot too high, too big, then you're going to lose. And if that happens, you are irresponsible and you are bad. And it wasn't the fact that I actually lost the money. It was the fact that I said, I think I can win and I'm going to play hard. And what made the profound shift for me, what made the adjustment in my attitude was a quote, and I, and I can't remember who said the quote. If I ever find it, I'll give credit to the person. I don't know where it came from, but the quote is, are you playing to win or are you playing not to lose? 
I'm going to say it again. Are you playing to win or are you playing not to lose? And that right there, I finally realized I broke my own rule. I played to win and I lost. I failed. I, I miserably made a mistake. Should I have played? Why? I had the best hand. I needed to know that so much. I actually looked up the stats and what are the, what's the statistics? What's the statistical probability of, of a queen, uh, queen high, full house versus a four of a kind? 700 to one picking up a queen high full house, okay? 4,000 to one for a four of a kind. I had the best hand mathematics. I should have won. And just the way poker goes, online poker I got some suspicions about, but um, the way poker goes is sometimes you lose against the math. And this one time I lost, but I don't regret it one iota anymore because I finally got in the game. I finally said, I'm gonna play to win. I'm tired of being scared. I'm tired of having to be careful. I can remember my glorious um, basketball season when I was in fourth grade. I scored a total of four points all season. It was an awesome season for me. I was the best. But I can remember playing, and the ball would get thrown to me, and I had one, one point, one purpose in whenever I got that ball, and that was give it to someone else. Because if I had it, what could happen? I could, I could lose it, I could, I could foul, I could double dribble, I could make a mistake, I could shoot and miss, ultimate failure right there. I, and so my goal was, I want to play to be safe. I was, um, are you playing to win or are you playing not to lose? I was playing not to lose. Got the ball? Here, it's yours. Okay, I'm done. Whew, I love being on this team. This is great. This is fantastic. <sighs> Which is why I scored four points all season. You don't, get to, you don't get a whole lot of, of results if you're not even willing to get in the game. So this one hand of poker changed my world. I hope that you guys get something that rock, rocks your world so much you have a stomachache that you want to throw up, that you're going, I can't believe this is happening to me, but I got to figure out why in the world this is so difficult. Why is this so traumatizing? Why is this so hard and heavy for me to carry? For me, it was poker. might be something else for you. But here's some of the stuff that came out of this stinking poker hand um, that I learned. You ready? If I had notes, I'd tell you to follow, but I don't. So, um, There's a false belief that happens here. Um, I'm not clicking the buttons, by the way. I'm trying something new here. Let's see if it happens. What's the false belief? Mistakes are okay, survivable, and necessary for me to grow. I cannot, you cannot improve, get better, change, grow. You can't do any of that unless you are willing to make a mistake. That's why we talked last week about this idea of, of um, positive uncertainty. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, the next day, any of that. But you have to be open to the idea of making mistakes. And if you aren't open, <coughs> then you're going to be stuck. You're just you're going to get entrenched in what's happening. Um, another thing to remember, and, I, and I, I, when I learned this, it, it, we've heard this. Okay, let me put it this way. We've probably heard this before over and over and over again. But internalizing it, knowing it, letting it sink in, and letting it be part of our psyche as we grow and change, this is a much harder thing. 
But what's the opposite of failure? No. See? But see how quick that comes to our minds? Because we've heard that over and over and over. What's the opposite of failure? Trying? Not trying. Okay, that's pretty good. What else? What else would be the opposite of failure? If it's not success, what is it? It's a little bit harder to define, isn't it? What if apathy? Yeah, see, that's sort of like the not trying thing again. Um, who was it? Who was it that said, oh, Seth Godin. You guys like Seth? Anyone know Seth Godin? I like Seth Godin a lot. Um, um, what did he say? He said something really cool. <laughs> oh, those who never get in the game never fail. See, I knew it would come up. Those who never get in the game never fail, but they also never win. Can you imagine being the, the marathon runner and everyone's finished and you're coming in at about seven hours in this marathon and you are dragging your butt across the finish line and there's these people on the sideline going, seven hours, good, great. Uh, everyone else finished five hours ago. Are you kidding me? Come on. Really? You suck. But to keep in mind, at least you're running the race. They're not even in the race. They have no chance of winning. They have no chance of finishing because they never, ever got in the race in the first place. And so who do we listen to? Who do we listen to? Do we listen to the, I'm going to keep following the guy running in front of me, or are we going to listen to the people who are criticizing from this high and mighty posture of, I'm not even going to fail because I'm not even going to get in the race. I'm not sure we want to listen to those people. I don't think they benefit us much if we are trying to improve ourselves or get better. So failure is not the opposite of success. It is a different stage of the same journey. It is um, a necessary part to get to where you want to be. Um, we talked last week about mastery versus success. Remember that part? I love that concept. I'm, I'm, that's new to me, and I'm, and I'm thinking about it more and more and more. If success is I've succeeded one time, I've reached one goal one time, okay, that's success, great, big deal. Mastery is, I can do it again and again and again and again and again. How many of you think that you are living your life perfectly right now? Whew. Okay, good. I'm glad I didn't see any hands on that one. Okay. How many of you are trying to gain mastery over your life? It isn't dialed in yet. You haven't figured it out. But you're trying to live your life better and better. And so that it is it is not predictable, but it is structured, it is guided, it is intentional. Masters. We need to become masters of our life, not successful people, because I'm not sure that even exists. It's a weird concept, isn't it? I love it. Mastery versus success. That's good stuff. Um, so again, we talked about are we playing to win or are you playing not to lose? Rhetorical question, please don't answer this question out loud. Please don't raise your hands. But if you were to take an evaluation of your life right now, which category do you think you would fall into? Okay, just chew on that for a second. How many of you can confidently say, I am okay with losing? I've learned how to develop that. I am, I'm ready to deal with the small failures, the small mistakes. Or how many of you are going, I just hope today I don't screw up. I just hope I can get through today and I don't make a mistake. I hope that I'm safe. Just take an evaluation of where you are at in this process. 
Mother Teresa says, keep in mind that our community is not composed of those who are already saints, but of those who are trying to become saints. Therefore, let us be extremely patient with each other's faults and failures. I love that. Let us be extremely patient with each other's faults and failures. I contemplated breaking you guys into small groups and risking sharing one failure you've had in your life. I might still do it this summer. I'm not making any promises. If I even just mention that, I want you to notice what, that, what response your body has. Just pay attention. For some, this might be the last night I see you. It was good having you. For others, it'd be like, okay, I'm willing to try that. And for others, it is, I'm willing to try that, but that scares the crap out of me. I talked about doing stuff this summer, letting this experience actually change you. It's hard to be seen, but what if, what if the people sitting next to you are saints, simply trying to become better saints, just like you are, and you're willing to say, let's grow together, let's try this, let's see what happens then it might be actually reassuring to go, oh, you screwed up too? Whew. More often it is, phew, you screwed up worse than me? Good. <laughs> yes. We can't help play the comparison game. Stop it. Don't do that. If you want to increase your success rate, you have to double your failure rate. That's Thomas Watson of IBM. Little company called IBM, remember that? Favorite story, I don't know if it's just urban legend anymore, but the story about the manager that was working for him and was on this project and lost $10 million. $10 million on this project. And he said, that's it, I know I'm fired. I mean, that's a big boo-boo. I don't sure if I could survive a $10 million mistake. And so he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting, and finally he gets the call from the head office. Thomas Watson calls him in. So he goes up to the executive um, uh, lobby there, and he's sitting out there, and he can hear Watson just storming and raging in the, in the room behind the big oak doors. And he goes, man, I'm dead. I mean, I'm dead. Finally, guy gets called in. The manager gets called in. And Watson sits down behind his desk and says, do you know why I've called you here? And the guy goes, yep, you're going to fire me. And he goes, fire you? Hell, I just spent $10 million educating you. I just want to make sure you got the right lesson. Can you imagine that? Imagine that mentality? Because that's true. Because that guy, if he moves on to the next company, he's not going to make that mistake for them. In fact, I actually encourage some of my clients, and I know this works because I had a client actually email me back after this works for him, on your resume. Do all the normal stuff, experience, education, goals, blah, blah, blah. And at the bottom put my three biggest mistakes and what I learned from them. Another way to put it is, um, three mistakes you're not going to have to pay me f to learn. And put them down. The, the client of mine who tried this, he had one resume out of 400. And that one section made him stand out and he ended up getting the job. Because he risked putting his failure out there and they said, huh, there's something to this. Now, okay. No guarantees. I'm not going to promise you you're going to get a job off of this, okay? There's a disclaimer, a sign on the bottom, okay? But do you want to be different? This world says cover up your mistakes. Hide them. Do not let them be seen. Look good. At least look better than the guy next to you. 
It's like the same lesson of uh, if you're getting chased by a bear, how fast do you have to run? Faster than the guy next to you. Yeah, just always make sure one guy slower. You don't have to be the fastest, just don't be the slowest. Okay? So we have this belief we've got to keep ourselves looking good, and it is not true. It keeps us stuck. It keeps us locked into fear. If mistakes are survivable, then overgeneralization makes mis uh, mistakes, impacts your self-concept. We have the belief that our failures, if we fail in one area of our life, we overgeneralize it, and it says we are failures. This is who I am. And that concept of overgeneralizing your mistake keeps you stuck in the failure. The ability to say, my mistake is out here, but I still have value and worth is an essential skill to being able to say failure is now a necessary step on the path to mastery. Not success, mastery. I'm going to change those words. Get that into my head too. Self-compassion and empathy is the primary ingredient to bounce back. It's the idea that says other people I respect have failed and survived, I can too. It, emo it addresses the emotional part of failure, not just the cognitive. So we understand, I made a mistake, I need to learn from it, I need to grow. But that's not what keeps us stuck. It isn't the, huh, now what lesson did I learn right here? How do I, how do I use this skill? How do I use this experience to the best of my ability? What's it feel like when you fail? Give me some of the emotions. Defeated. Defeated. Yeah. Guilt. Shame. Sad. Embarrassing. That's a good one. Embarrassment is unwanted exposure. It's unwanted vulnerability. What else? Overwhelmed. Yeah. Frustration. Frustration. Say it again. Feel like you want to hide. Yeah. There's consequences to failure. Yeah. And the sorrow, the grief, the grieving process. Yeah. What do we do with those emotions? How do you just magically make your feelings stop? You just screwed up. You had a failure. You messed up. Can you make yourself just feel better? They manifest through illness or stress. They manifest through stress or what else? Illness, yeah, absolutely, our bodies respond. Remember that knot in my stomach I talked about when I got four nines, taking all my money? Stupid four nines. Take them out on people. Take them out on people. That's been known to happen. When you're having a bad day, you treat other people badly. Any, um, just one guy probably has ever done that in here. <laughs> Thanks for admitting that. Medicate. Medicate, man. Should we talk about the styles of medication? We'll just skip that. Yes. What? We eat them. That's a very good form of medicating feelings. Yes. Our appetites sometimes get out of whack. We have to address the emotional component of failure, not just the cognitive part. We have to know how to self-soothe appropriately, how to do self good self-care. Failure hurts, OK? This class will not teach you how to have failure that doesn't hurt. 
that's another class, okay? I, I don't teach that one because I don't know how to do that. Failure will hurt. And so the ability to say, I am willing to endure a little bit of pain and discomfort because I'll grow and change through that. We have to build resilience, strength. That is an incredibly important part of overcoming failure is I will hurt and I will survive. Now, we had two things, the feelings component. Someone said shame and someone said guilt, right? Remember those two words? What is the difference between shame and guilt? I am bad versus I did something bad, which is which? Shame is I am bad, I did something bad. How else would you distinguish the two? Any other ways? Behavior, identity, or identity versus behavior. Identity versus behavior, absolutely. Yeah? One is productive, One is productive and the other is destructive. I like that. Which one's which? Productive, destructive. That's good. I told you we got some good teachers in the room. That's fantastic. I like that. Yes. Guilt Look. is something that other people can accuse you of, but shame is something you feel only about yourself. Guilt is something that other people accuse you of. Shame is what you feel towards yourself. I'll agree partly, because I think it is actually possible to shame other people. But I understand where you're going with that. Just, yep. Uh, letting other people down for a shame and then you'll just kind of let yourself down. Man, these are good. I should be recording this. Oh, <laughs> these are excellent. Yeah, letting yourself down versus letting other people down. Well, I, I kind of looked at it the other way. Like letting other people, letting yourself down. Um, letting other people letting down. Letting other people down brings shame on yourself. Like you, you okay. Got it. Yeah. App. Got it. That's good. That's good. Listen to the story just for a minute, okay? During the first day of an introductory speech class, the teacher was going around the room having the students introduce themselves. Each student was, res was to respond. Hold on. to the question, what do I like about myself and what don't I like about myself? Nearly hiding at the back of the room was Dorothy. Her long red hair hung down around her face, almost obscuring it from view. When it was Dorothy's turn to introduce herself, there was only silence in the room. Thinking perhaps she had not heard the question, the teacher moved his chair over near hers and gently repeated the question. Again, there was only silence. Finally, with a deep sigh, Dorothy sat up in her chair, pulled back her hair, and in the process revealed her face. Covering nearly all of one side of her face was a large, irregularly shaped birthmark, nearly as red as her hair. That, she said, should show you what I don't like about myself. Moved with compassion, this godly professor leaned over and gave her a hug. Then he kissed her on the cheek where the birthmark was and said, that's okay, honey. God and I still think you are beautiful. Dorothy cried 
uncontrollably for almost 20 minutes. Soon other students had gathered around her and were offering their comfort as well. When she finally could talk, as she dabbed the tears from her eyes, she said to the professor, I've wanted so much for someone to hug me and to say what you said. Why couldn't my parents do that? My mother won't even touch my face. What was she feeling, shame or guilt? Maybe a little bit of both. Can you imagine that? Now what is tragic is I know there are individuals in this room right now who have that thing. It might not be an observable birthmark. It might be something physical. I don't know. But there is that thing that you have defined your identity up through in whatever way that is. I don't know what it is. But you are longing. You are aching. You are hoping that somebody somewhere will see that and not run screaming from the room that won't look at you in disgust, that won't reject you or push you away. I don't know what that is for you. We, we long for it. We ache for it. And again, we have the opportunity in this room, in this summer, in this year, to offer that to other individuals and somehow possibly change their life. You, normal, plain, everyday you could offer that to some other human being. It's not a bad way to spend a night. There's a false belief which says, my mistakes prove that I am a bad person. They justify. See, my behavior now proves my, who I am as a human being. Yes, that was a good song. <laughs> Some simple definitions, and we've already covered most of them. While guilt is a painful feeling of regret and responsibility for one's actions, shame is a painful feeling about oneself as a person. I actually tell many of my clients, as their counselor, I want you to feel more guilt. I want you to be more guilty, which confuses them at times, because it's like, why is my counselor telling me they want me to be more guilty? <clears throat> because oftentimes the things that they feel bad over are behaviors, and they should feel bad over them. I want people to feel guilty because that tells me that their conscience isn't, isn't seared, that their conscience isn't, isn't muted or, or, or cold or turned off. I want people to feel bad when they, when they behave irre irresponsibly or improperly. But so often people take the mistakes and they say, this proves that I am a bad person, and so their shame keeps them stuck, keeps them locked. And I want them to be able to shift from shame to guilt, because guilt, you can actually do something about that. Shame, your identity, now you're dealing with a whole belief system, you're dealing about how you view yourself, how you view the world, paradigms, lots of stuff, and those are much, much harder to shift. They are, they are possible to shift, Okay, I want you to hear me that very, very clearly. If you're someone who carries a lot of shame, you can actually get over it. It's refreshing, by the way. It is way refreshing. Been there, done that. Okay? Still shows up. But man, it is really nice to be able to say, that wasn't as good as I wanted it to be, and yet I'm still going to come back. Yeah. 
Those lacking self-esteem typically overgeneralize their failures to conclude that they are just plain less intelligent and less competent than others. Again, you make a mistake, you make this sweeping broad overgeneralization, and then you assume something. I am not as smart and I am not as valuable. By one mistake, two mistakes, a dozen mistakes. And when you start to say, I am less intelligent and I'm less valuable, then you go, well, see, I don't even have the tools to crawl, up, crawl out of this hole. I stay stuck. I can't, even, I can't even change myself. So I might as well just tolerate. I might as well just hang on. I might as well just survive. And when you get into the survival mode, what do you typically pursue? Safety. What? Safety. safety and what? Not just safety. If, it, if you just have to tolerate something crappy, you usually move into the... If it's already bad, I might as well just have as much fun as I can while I'm here. And so you start to pursue the pleasure. You start to pursue the, I'm just going to, if it feels good, do it. And there's lots of things that make you feel good pretty quickly, aren't there? We could name one or two or nine different things that make you feel really good really fast. Give me one or two. Drugs. Sex. Sex. Alcohol. Alcohol. Ice cream. That's moral. That's okay. There is no problem with ice cream or chocolate. That's a perfectly acceptable addiction. What else? Self-pity. You can get addicted to self-pity. Absolutely. What else? Just think. Exercise. Woo. Busyness. Busyness. Yeah. Anything that just makes me feel good. TV, entertainment, distraction, numbing. I'm just going to turn off my feelings. Yeah. We get stuck in there, right? What was yours? Cutting. Cutting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Self-harm stuff. I'm going to challenge you, if any of you in the room wrestle with any of those things at all, if any of those things tend to show up, I want you to examine, ask yourself the question, do I believe that I actually can change? How true does that feel? I can change. I can actually become different. I don't have to just tolerate my life. My life can actually become what I want it to be. Just take that gauge, okay? For some of you, that might be a 10, you know, totally true. For some of you, that might be a 2. And it's like, Paul, you're talking crazy. That's not possible. What are you thinking? Notice where that, where that truth statement feels for you. And typically, if it's lower, you're going to be pursuing pleasure. You're going to be pursuing some sort of addictive behavior. It works really good. Shame says, I fail because I'm a failure, and there really is no other option. The best way to overcome failure is to actually do something. We have to make a choice. We have to, we have to get back up and build resilience. I talk about, I grew up in San Diego. There's not a lot of snow in San Diego, is there? It's a nice place to surf, but not a lot of good places to get in the snow. And so my friend James, he grew up in Alaska. He loves snow. So I'm one of those bad Portland drivers. When it starts to have a few flakes outside, I'm one of those run to the grocery store, grab canned goods, and get home as fast as I can because the blizzard, she's a coming. <laughs> really just bad. I panic. It's embarrassing. James, three, four feet of snow out there. He's out there in his little two-wheel Honda doing donuts, having a good time. He knows how to drive it. He's going around the four-by-fours who are stuck because they don't know how to drive in it. And he's just having a good time. And so he bought an old, beat-up 
Toyota Land Cruiser, one of those cool Jeep looking ones that it's just cool to bounce around in that. So we jump in that thing, head up to the mountain. And I'm going, what if we get stuck? He goes, I got shovels in the back. We'll dig our way out. And he just, he had tons of resilience, snow resilience. My resilience, much, much lower because I just don't have a lot of experience in it. So to get out of failure, we have to do something. I got to go get stuck in the snow a lot. I got to play more hands of poker. I got to have the hard conversations with the person again and again and again. I've got to ask for the raise. I've got to talk to my spouse. I've got to talk to my kids. I need to apologize. I've got to do it over and over and over again. It's so exhausting. You must not be doing it right. No. <laughs> You're right. It's incredibly exhausting. That wasn't very nice of me. I apologize. It is absolutely exhausting. It is... It is it's frustrating because you can be doing it right every time and it still takes time to grow that. And having the mental place that says, keep going back, do it again, do it again. That's hard, isn't it? Yeah, it is hard. I want you to imagine that I don't like you. I just don't like you. In fact, I hate you. In fact, I hate you so much, I want to convey my hatred, my venom, my vice towards you. And so I come up to you, and with all of the evil, evil look, with all the hatred in my voice, I look at you and I go, you are nothing but a giant purple bumblebee. You're smiling. How effective of an insult is that, by the way? I need to work on my insults. I need to come up with your mama jokes or something like that, okay? If I call someone a giant purple bumblebee, do you think they're going to be hurt by that? <clears throat> Probably not. How come? Purple's pretty. That's true. It's not true. We don't identify with that. Very, very good. <clears throat> what if you walked around and go going... I think I'm a giant purple bumblebee. I shoot. I really think I'm a giant purple bumblebee. I hope no one else sees that I'm a purple bumblebee. I might be a purple bumblebee. Shoot. i got to keep that hidden. And someone comes up and you go, you giant purple bumblebee. It gives you the look. Right? There needs to be a pre-existing negative belief in our hearts in our identity and how we view ourselves for an insult, for a failure, for a mistake to, to hurt us, to make that sort of impact. And that's good news. That's good news. Because if that pre-existing negative belief is there, then we can do something about it. Our, our identity isn't actually held in other people's opinion of ourselves. It says you have more control in your life. It's wonderful. It's fantastic. When you actually learn this, when you go, I actually get to choose what hurts and what doesn't, I'll sign up for that. I love that. The pre-existing negative beliefs are like the cracks in the armor. The arrows go right through it and, and hit those soft, squishy parts, so it's really hurt sometimes when, when you get stabbed in them. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt says, nobody can make me feel inferior without my consent. That's where I got the concept from. I have to give consent for you to hurt me. 
It's like saying, all right, I'm going to stand here. I give you permission to punch me in the face. How wise would I be if I did that? Not very much. I have to say, if you're going to punch me in the face, I'm going to step back. I'm going to step over here. I'm going to bob, bob and weave. I'm going to do everything I can to not get punched in the face. I might tell you you can't be here. I have to give consent if someone's going to make me feel bad, make me feel inferior. Again, wonderful, wonderful news. We have lots of control in that. How many of you are familiar with The Artist's Way? It's a book, um, one or two people maybe. Came across a fantastic quote in there. It says, remember that in order to recover as an artist, you must be willing to be a bad artist. Give yourself permission to be a beginner. By being willing to be a bad artist, you have a chance to be an artist and perhaps over time, a very good one. We don't like to be bad artists. I, that's this one mentality right here, which says, I want to be good right now. I want to be good as soon as I begin. In fact, I'm not going to put myself out there until I am good. So I'm just going to keep trying on my own, keep trying on my own. And then when I think I'm good enough, then I'll put myself out there for the world to see. How many times do you think you actually step out there and let people see you? <laughs> Rarely, because are you ever good enough for yourself? Hardly ever. And so we have to have the idea, we have to have the concept which says, I will put myself out there while I am not a very good artist, and perhaps over time I will get to be a good artist because I've been a bad artist long enough. Put those really bad stick figure drawings on, drawings on the refrigerator, and then you put hair on it and big hands. And... By the way, substitute the word artist for what you want to be. By being willing to be a bad spouse, by being willing to be a bad parent, by being willing to be a bad electrician, school teacher, daughter, son. This isn't about art. This concept is about, I want to be a better business person, so I will be a bad business person. I want to be a better speaker, so I'll keep speaking, knowing full well I might be a bad speaker sometimes. I got to keep getting up here and doing it again and again and again. Yes. Yep. Yes. That one. Correct. So what, what you're saying is you don't believe that you're bad in that way, but the other person believes you in that believes you're bad in that way. Yeah. I call it the Superman syndrome or the Superman principle. Who's Superman when he's not Superman? Who is he? Clark Kent. What kind of guy is Clark Kent? By the way, how smart are the guys around him who don't recognize a pair of glasses? They're really good glasses if you can't figure out that he's Superman. Okay? But he puts on the glasses, he puts on the goofy tie, and he does those things. And how do people treat him? They, they think that he's a nerd. They think that he's stupid. They think that he's incompetent. They're giving him the crappy jobs. They just don't treat him well. They think that he is poor. I mean, they just think that he's just not a quality guy, right? Do you think he goes around having to prove that he's Superman? 
Oh yeah, male guy, you think that I'm not very good? Watch this. He puts his hand through a, through a wall. <laughs> when you know, when you have this idea that I am not inferior, um, because my self-concept is I know I'm good enough, even if you do not believe that I am, I know who I am, then it doesn't matter what other people do, how they view you. I also happen to be a fan of, I can't believe I'm going to admit this. I'll edit this part out of the recording. I like a good kung fu movie. I like really bad B-roll, B-movie kind of kung fu. I mean, classic, really bad kung fu. And there's usually this guy. He's the old beggar who comes wandering into town, right? And he's being kicked by the soldiers and getting spat on and, and you know, throwing slop at him. And he's just getting mistreated over and over and over again. And he picks up scraps off the ground and he, he eats that. And everyone thinks that he's just nobody. And usually on the way out of town, what's happening? There's some mother and child being, being harassed by the soldiers. And what does this old guy do? He hobbles over there and kicks their butt because he's this kung fu master. And, you know, in a flurry of fists and feet and staffs and magic things that fly everywhere, everyone's laying down dead around this guy. And he picks up his little satchel and he keeps shuffling down the road because he knows he's a kung fu master and he doesn't need to prove it to everybody. When we have this concept of, I know that I am okay, and I, and I know, and here's the other hard part about this, it's a guarantee that other people are going to think poor of you. Yeah, it sucks. It sucks. I actually encourage it, and hear me out on this. I believe that there are some things in this life that are worth standing up for, and there are other people in this life who will disagree with me. And I would rather take a side and say, we are not going to be friends. We're not going to be able to have a relationship because our values are so different, because you view the world so different than I view the world, that I'm not going to be able to please you, and you're not going to be able to please me. You almost make an enemy. But there are some things worth making enemies for. There are some things that I will fight for unapologetically, and I'll be willing to hurt your feelings. Gladly. I want to polarize rather than try to walk that middle line that says, I just want to make sure everyone likes me. I just want to make sure everybody's happy. Because then you're held hostage to everyone else's opinions, belief, ideas, values, and you just stay stuck. Instead, go, this is who I am. This is who I'm going to be. I make a line in the sand and I make a declaration. That's uncomfortable for some people because you might offend someone. There are some people who need to be offended, dramatically offended. Does that, does that help at all? Remember this thing? What is that? How many had one? Oh, yeah, that was the coolest thing. What year did it come out in? Anyone remember? 2001. 2001. 13 years ago. First iPod. No color display. Click wheel. And it was revolutionary. It changed the world. Anyone know how many iterations between that and the new iPhone 5S that's out right now? 
How many, how many different iPods, iTouches, iShuffles, iWhatevers? Nope. 26. We are on the 26th iteration of iWhatever. But it had to start somewhere. And again, when we look backwards, we're going, this is really bad. Who, I mean, if you, can, if you actually have one, you can probably sell it on eBay for big money because it's just a classic now. It's like a Commodore 64 or something. It's just cool. We overcome failure by just telling each other. We overcome shame by telling each other. Right now, shame's actually big in the media right now. Brene Brown, she's kind of the guru of all shame. Um, a lot of people read stuff from her, great TED Talks out there. Um, she's got it dialed in because she lands on one simple principle, and that is you have to put yourself out there even though you want to throw up. You have to put yourself out there even though you think you're going to die. You have to try one way that just sucks, but I'm going to try one step, and if it doesn't kill me, I'll take another step, and I'll try again and again and again. That's how you overcome shame. You build the resilience. You start to know, I believe, I believe what I know about myself, and I'll be okay if other people don't believe that about me, but I'm going to keep trying anyway, over and over. So anything by Brene Brown, um, Google her. Um, if you actually go to my website, type in Brene Brown, there's a couple videos on there that just links to some of her TED Talks, and they're just, they're just good. 12 steps programs are so successful because of this principle. Because they make you show up and say, hi, my name is Paul and I am a, insert addiction here, right? It's not, by the way, that's not doing, that's my identity. That's not why it works, by the way. Did you know that? You're not saying, hi, I am an alcoholic and that's my identity. Why do they do it? Because I'm no longer going to hide it. I am an alcoholic, that is my behavior. And I'm gonna choose every time to tell myself over and over and over again, I will let you see that. The thing that is most shameful about me, I will make that available. Yeah, time that just right. Which takes us to the next concept around failure. When you mess up, what do you do? How do you get past it? We talk about exposing yourself, putting yourself out there. You have to let people see you, okay? That helps you overcome the shame. But then we've heard this word, but there's just a ton of confusion around what does it look like? How do you do it? When should you do it? When shouldn't you do it? How many times should you do it? Why should you do it? Forgiveness can be a, a fairly um, confusing confusing a um, way to move through mistakes. There's a false belief about forgiveness which says, I don't want to let someone off the hook for their mistakes, including myself. If I let myself off the hook, if I don't accuse myself, if I don't beat myself up, then somehow I'm not atoning for my own mistakes. I am not doing it right. And that keeps us stuck. It keeps us from being able to move forward. Here's another story I want you to be able to see. Thank you, Lord. In a small apartment building in North Minneapolis, Thank a 59-year-old teacher's aide sings praise to God for no seemingly apparent reason. Indeed, if anyone was to have issues with the Lord, 
it would be Mary Johnson. For all you've done for me. He never had a chance. In February 1993, Mary's son, Loramian Bird, was shot to death during an argument at a party. He was 20 and Mary's only child. My son was gone. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. I wanted justice. He was an animal. He deserved to be caged. And he was. Tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years, O'Shea served 17 before being recently released. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This close. He lives next door. Next door. How a convicted murderer ended up living a door jam away from his victim's mother is a story not of horrible misfortune, as you might expect, but of remarkable mercy. A few years ago, Mary asked if she could meet O'Shea here at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. As a devout Christian, she felt compelled to see if there was some way, if somehow she could forgive her son's killer. What'd she say to you? I believe the first thing she said was, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, let's just start with right now. And I was befuddled myself. O'Shea says they met regularly after that. When he got out, she introduced him to her landlord, who, with Mary's blessing, invited O'Shea to move into the building. Today, they don't just live close, they are close. Clearly, Mary was able to forgive. Unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son, but the forgiveness is for me. It's for me. For O'Shea, it hasn't been that easy. I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning how to forgive myself, and I'm still growing towards, you know, trying to forgive myself and what it is I've done. To that end, O'Shea is now busy proving himself to himself. He works at a recycling plant by day and goes to college by night. He says he's determined to pay back Mary's clemency by contributing to society. In fact, he's already working on it, singing the praises of God and forgiveness at prisons, churches, to large audiences everywhere. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Yes, I'm grateful. Which explains why Mary can sing yes, her praise of thanks to her audience so of one. Steve Hartman, yes, CBS News, Minneapolis. For all you've done for me. Thoughts. Wow. Lots of wows. Powerful. Yeah. 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 I found it interesting that guy said, you know, he was struggling forgiving him, forgiving himself where she had already forgiven him. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's harder to forgive ourselves? We for beat ourselves up. We do. We constantly accuse ourselves. Right? Stupid little things. And we keep telling ourselves, don't forget, don't forget. You messed up. You messed up. <coughs> Gives you hope. You see God's power working. Go to the next slide. 
We use unforgiveness as a way to motivate ourselves. We believe if we can remind ourselves of our mistakes, we won't make mistakes again. And yet the exact opposite happens. When we continue to shame ourselves, when we continue to say, see, you screwed up, that's who you are, it doesn't trigger the, so I want to get better. It triggers self-protection. It triggers the three Fs, the fight, flight, or freeze response. It's actually a whole different part of the brain the limbic brain inside of there that says danger, danger, Will Robbins. And it turns off the thinking, cognitive, rational, learning part of your brain. And it turns on the just don't get caught, don't get stuck, don't die. And so we end up making really poor choices as we continue to beat ourselves up. We continue to threaten ourselves. It's like we're in a threatening situation and we can't get out of it. And so we constantly, constantly, constantly are in this, I'm scared, I'm scared. We use unforgiveness as a way to motivate ourselves, and it's a very bad technique. It's not bad to want to motivate ourselves. I just want you to use a different tool, because this one doesn't work. This one keeps you stuck over and over and over again. Now, there's, we've got to talk about some kinds of wounds, some, actually some fairly important kinds of wounds, um, as we talk about forgiveness. Um, People wounded by friends and co-workers may lose their faith in their own judgment. Questions like, how could I have chosen this person as a friend? But family and spouses usually cause the greatest hurts. Intimate injuries alter our perception of reality. Intimate injuries, the people that we let into our lives, that we actually become vulnerable with, we we are, our guards are, are, less up around them and they have a greater capacity to hurt us in ways that alter our entire perception of reality. We start to doubt God. We don't even know who or what to trust anymore. And we doesn't even we lose ourselves in that. That's why wounds that come from family members, parents, siblings, or wounds that come from spouses stab us in ways that nobody else can hurt us. They are life-altering, and you do not recover from them quickly. And that's okay, because you're not supposed to. People who hurt their spouses challenge the victim's assumptions about what control a person has over their own destiny, how much trust you can put in another person's ability. Spouses. Again, those are people you actually choose. I choose to be married to you, and now I've realized I might have made a bad choice, or the person I married is now different. They, they're just, they've completely changed. Something happened in their life, and so the choice I made hasn't worked out for me, and it, and it challenges our assumptions about what control I have. But there's another intimate injury that happens even deeper, and that is for children. Children harmed by parents may come to rely solely on themselves for their survival or well-being. A child may never again see people as sources of safety or intimacy. A child cannot choose their family. A child has to simply endure and tolerate the situation that they are in because they don't have the same resources as adults. They don't have the same power. And those injuries shape your entire reality for the rest of your life. If you want to see what that sounds like, listen to this. 
it's a long time ago now. I'm I'm a grey-haired <laughs> old lady at this point. But um, yes, I was 13 and uh, I was away from home for the first time in a children's hospital. I had a bone infection. I'd had an operation. I was really quite unwell. Um, in those days, parents weren't allowed to spend time with you in the hospital. You only had a visit of maybe an hour each day. Mm-hmm. But the Catholic priest chaplain of the hospital um, became very friendly and... Uh, he came to visit me and I was quite fearful, as I say, it was my first time away from home and he made me feel secure and I suppose also the way these men work, you know, they make you feel special. And uh, he started to come round in the evenings and just read to me because uh, I'd had an operation, I couldn't use one arm, I couldn't hold a book. And um, he managed to organise that the nurse who was supposed to be on the ward would leave for a certain length of time. And then he uh, he started to abuse me. He started off as a game, and then it uh, it proceeded from there. Um, it affected me in the rest of my life. You know. How long did it take you to tell someone? Well, you know, I went into that hospital as a very confident little girl, sure of myself. I came out an entirely different individual. I thought I was a bad person. As with most survivors of abuse, you you blame yourself. You think it's something about you that's bad. I turned in on myself and um, I spent the next 20 or 30 years really suffering with very severe depressions. I was in my own home for about four years with agoraphobia. I couldn't go outside my front door. Um, I did get married and I, I have a lovely husband and son. But I didn't think to speak to anyone about it. But um, on talking to a psychiatrist, a doctor who was trying to help me uh, 25 years after the abuse... I began to realise that it was something that had been done to me. That was the first time I spoke about it, 25 years after. Wow. I read somewhere that at one point another priest told you that you were to blame for what had happened. You had disclosed this to him? Unfortunately, it was at that point where I had just disclosed it for the first time to this doctor. And um, he told me I should go and tell somebody in the church that this man might still be a danger to children. So... I arranged to see the curate in my parish, who was somebody I trusted. And I, I had never stopped being practicing Catholic because I thought it was all my fault. It, it didn't in any way stop my practicing my religion. So I went to my local curate, and when I told him about the abuse, I started to tell him. He didn't really let me to go into a lot of detail. He said, um, you probably tempted the poor man. And uh, he said, you're forgiven. So uh, that totally devastated me because it threw me right back into that pit really of of self-guilt so I left and uh, I didn't speak to another soul about it for 10 years and unfortunately my abuser went on abusing for those 10 years. What happened to your abuser, Reverend Paul McGuinness? Paul McGuinness, um, he had sent me photographs and Christmas cards and things after the abuse, now perfectly respectable photographs. Unfortunately, he took abusive photographs as well. Mm. So I had some proof of our contact and he did admit the abuse. So eventually the, the police force here were able to charge him. He was charged with indecent assault and he was convicted and jailed. Since then, because my case went public, other survivors have come forward and it, he's been now convicted of abuse over three different decades. Has he passed away since? No, he's still alive. He's, he's in his 80s. But uh, his last conviction was only a couple of years ago. Um, unfortunately, he was uh, 
seriously assaulting a, a little girl from the age of 10 to 14. Just breathe for a minute. Pay attention to what's going on inside as you hear that story. Again, I know in a room this size that that story is not unfamiliar to some, both men and women. When we are hurt as children, it shapes our entire identity. It shapes our perception of reality. At 12 years old, 13 years old, this woman goes in and she doesn't talk about it for 25 years. And when she does talk about it, she's told it is her fault and that she's forgiven. Anyone want to put some words to just what stirs up around this? You don't have to, but I'm just curious if that would help. Yeah, people who are supposed to be the most trustworthy because they're supposed to be the representation of Christ's love alter that. They contaminate that. Just anyone else, if you want to put words to that. That's a good catch. Why are we so quick to want to tell her it's not her fault, but then we never give ourselves that same message? Isn't that an ironic dynamic? We're much harder on ourselves. Much, much harder on ourselves. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is an incredibly important concept. I've got one more video for you to watch. Gary Ridgway sat there stone-faced as victims' relatives damned him and mocked him. He's an animal. I wish for him to have a long, suffering, cruel death. He's gonna go to hell and that's where he belongs. But then the emotionless facade finally cracked when the father of one of his victims morning, appeared to surprise him with a dose of human kindness. Mr. Ridgway, um... There are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. You've, you've made it difficult to live up to what I believe, and that is what God says to do, and that's to forgive. You are forgiven, sir. murdered 48 women, admitted it, took them and found their bodies. And he sits there and he hears, that first woman, did you see the sneer on her face? Could you see the venom in her life because of what was taken from her? Rightly so. Someone she loved was taken away. She can never, ever, ever get that person back. And so she is filled with this hatred 
wanting him to be damned in hell forever. And as he hears those things, what is his expression? What is his response? He agrees, and so it doesn't change. No, that's exactly right. He agrees. He knows. And what shakes him? What? Forgiveness. He can't, he can't stop it. Which again is counterproductive or counterintuitive, not counterproductive, counterintuitive. It's not how our brains work. If we want to get through to the person who has hurt us the most, attacking them, criticizing them, condemning them, does not often put them into a receptive state. It puts them into a defensive state, into a turned off state, into a, into a shut down state. And yet when we open ourselves up to them and say, you have hurt me, you cannot repay me. There's nothing you can do to atone or make up for what you have done. And I do not expect you to. I will forgive you. You are released. That shakes people to their core. And that is not easy. I want you to hear very, very clearly from me. Getting to this place is not easy. It is not done quickly. And it is not done in one time. You have to keep putting yourself in that place over and over and over again. But it is effective. It is transformative. So, what if? What if this man, somehow, we have a way to read his brain, and we find out, I no longer accuse myself. I will pay the consequences. There are consequences to my horrific actions, but I no longer view myself as a bad human being. What do you think about that? What stirs inside you? It's weird. It doesn't, like, it doesn't seem to add up. It doesn't. It doesn't seem to add up. Is that even allowed? Can a man who murdered 48 women in cold blood, is he even allowed to like himself? Those are hard questions. I don't, it's more of a rhetorical question right now. I'm not, I'm, even I'm not sure how to, how to handle that because part of me would say no. His character, his very essence is evil. Evil incarnate right here. Or is it? Because if, it, if he is, now it's just a matter of degrees. Okay, he murdered 48 people. But someone who murders only 10 people, they're not as bad as he is. Is he allowed to forgive himself? Or herself? Is the person who murders two people? One person. Okay, I haven't murdered anybody, but I, um, I have some friends. Their 10-year-old daughter is going to check the mail um, over here in Damascus, boring area. She, one day just went out to check the mail, cross a busy road, way back, neighbor in a suburban hit her. Didn't kill her, but alter her life for the rest of her life. She, neighbor didn't do anything malicious, but change this little girl's life forever. Is that person allowed to forgive themselves? Where's the lines? 
if we were to hear some of your stories and we were to play the comparison game, we could line everyone up and go, you know, you're worse than I am. You're, I'm, I'm worse than you are. We could probably play that game. But let's not do that. If you know your story, the stuff that you are imperfect in, the mistakes you have made, are you willing to say, if I'm so quick to grant forgiveness to someone else, if I want to convince someone else that it's not their, their, not their fault, can I grant that to myself? These are hard questions to answer. But I will invite you to try. Okay? I want you just to see what happens. Questions or thoughts? Pushback. Okay. Right. Question is, there's two different philosophies. You are what you do and you aren't what you do. And your question is? Right. Right. Correct. Their behavior reflects their heart condition. Kind of. And here's something even more confusing. That's actually true. That's actually biblical, right? The tree will bear fruit, okay? And the kind of fruit that we bear depends upon the health of the tree. So that is a, even a biblical concept, but fascinating idea because and this is why I want to call this class graceful failure, grace-filled failure, because what is different about this entire concept is there is no expectation that you have to be perfect before you are loved. We understand that you are, you are flawed and broken and filled with mistakes and imperfect, and it is a matter of degrees, as bad as this guy or as bad as I am or as bad as you are. There is a matter of degrees, but we are all imperfect. And yet, for some strange reason that is almost unknown, the person who created you said, I don't want you to live that way in that state forever. And so I will choose to accept you in your imperfect state. I will actually atone. I will pay the penalty the consequences for all of your mistakes. And all I want you to do is live with thankfulness and appreciation and grant that to other people. I tell the story and then I'll let you guys go. I tell the story if, if I get caught busting into stores and stealing TVs and I'm now standing before the judge because I'm not a very good thief and he goes, you've been doing this for several years now so your, your, your sentence is 10 years in prison. Gavel goes down put in handcuffs, and I'm led off to jail. Just before I leave the courtroom, someone comes in the back of the courtroom and says, Judge, I'd like to approach the bench, please. Judge lets him up. He comes up. We can't hear what the conversation is. But after a five-minute conversation, the judge steps back and says, Paul, your sentence has been filled. You are free to go handcuffs come off and they go over to the person who walked into the back and the handcuffs go on that person. And I'm going, excuse me, what? 
what's happening here? And the judge says, this person has chosen to pay your, your sentence. He's going to do 10 years in prison, and, and you are free to go. What would you do? What, what, what stirs inside you if that was actually you? Would you say, woohoo, I'm gone, see ya, thanks, goodbye, and just bail out of there? Or would you have some hesitation? What stirs inside you as you hear that story? Huh? Confusion and hesitation. Confusion and hesitation. Why? Feel like you're being tricked. Feel like you're being tricked, yeah. But the judge says, absolutely not. He will pay 10 years. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Because why? What, do we, what does make sense? We will pay for our crimes. That's how our thinking goes. That's how our judicial system works. That's how this world works. And yet, the amazing thing is, someone comes in and says, that system sucks. Why would you do that? And so, I will pay that price. And so, as I hear this story, part of me goes, no, 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 no. I have to atone. I have to, I have to make up for my own sins, and I'm going to try to pay it off. I'm going to try to pay it off. And so, as he's led to jail... I now go, I'm not going to let him sit in jail for me. And so I go and I sit in the cell next to him. Doors open. I can come and go, but I choose not to. Because it's like, nope, you are not going to pay my price for me. I'm going to do my own time. Did you know there are some people doing that? There are some people who said, I know that someone has given me the gift of freedom, and I refuse to accept it. They just do. They say, I don't want it. And so I will continue to try to be good enough. I will continue to try to make up for my own failures. And I'm going to sit in prison for 10 years. And the guy who just took my sentence is sitting next to me going, you're free to go. I'm going to be here whether you are or not. I will be here. Or I can do what is so counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense in my brain. And I can go, you're going to be sitting in prison. And I'm going to have freedom. Every day, I'm going to remember that. And today's, the freedom that I have today, I shouldn't have. This is, this is something I've been given which is not actually mine. And so today, I'm going to make today last. I'm going to make today worth something. And so when someone wrongs me, it's like, I could have been sitting in prison right now. I'm going to let that go. I'm going to grant you forgiveness, and I'm not going to continue to accuse you. And I'm going to live through appreciation. I'm going to live with thankfulness for that gift that was given me rather than I still have to prove how good I am. I'm not good. I admit that right now. I should be in prison. I am not good enough. I'm only here because somebody else paid my price. And that changes the way I live. If you can get into that mindset, all sorts of stuff changes. It's amazing. Yep. And they don't really, you Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get through it all. That's not surprised. We'll finish up next week because next week we're going to also talk about grieving. When you make a mistake and there is absolutely no way to make up for it, you can't get it back. There's nothing that you can do, and you simply have to live with the pain of it. What do you do in those situations? We're going to talk about that and some other stuff next week. Thanks for listening to this podcast. 
If you'd like more information, please visit paulelmore.com.